Well, welcome everybody. Um, I want to welcome everyone to the to the LSE. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the uh, head of the International Relations Department and the director of the U.S. Center, which is hosting today's conversation with Valerie Jarrett. So, Valerie is the author of uh, Finding My Voice: My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, uh, which was published in April, right? And it's on the New York New York Times bestseller list, and there are copies in the back, and she's going to be signing them after we um, finish up. Um, as I think everybody in the room knows, Valerie was a senior advisor to um, Barack Obama and also the assistant uh, to the president for international intergovernmental affairs and public engagement. Um, as um, she recounts in the book, and in addition to um, to that role, um, she played, um, or maybe in conjunction with it, a leading role in the development of um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, um, and in helping getting it it passed. Uh, she chaired the White House Council on uh, Women and Girls, and co-chaired uh, the White House Task Force to protect students from. Um, sexual uh, assault. She's a longtime resident of Chicago and has worked uh, in the Chicago uh, political system. She worked for, um, she served as deputy corporate counsel for finance and development for uh, Mayor Harold uh, Washington uh, and then as deputy chief of staff for um, Mayor Richard Daley uh, before uh, going on to become the chairwoman of the Chicago Transit Board uh, for 10 years. Uh, a graduate of Stanford uh, University and Michigan, University of Michigan uh, Law School. She now serves on the board of directors for uh, Lyft, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, and TU2U, which is uh, an online education platform that offers uh, short courses for working professionals and that LSE works closely with. So there's an LSE yes. connection yes, here, which is great. Um, and she's also a, um, a distinguished uh, fellow at the University of Chicago, where she teaches uh, in the law school and works closely with people in the uh, Harris School of Public Policy. Um, a few quick public service announcements before we get started. I guess, one, if you haven't already put your phones on silent, please do. Um, do we have it up here? For those of you who are on Twitter, the suggested hashtag is um, hashtag LSE Jarrett. And as I mentioned, at the end, we're going to conclude promptly at 1 o'clock, and there will be an opportunity to purchase a book, and, and Valerie will be very pleased to, uh, to sign it. And with that, please join me in giving Valerie Jarrett a nice LSE welcome. Thank you. What a warm welcome. I am delighted to be here with you. It's my last stop before I head to the airport, and what better way to spend uh, the early afternoon. So thank you all for coming out today, and thank you, Peter, for hosting me. It's great to have you here. Um, so I guess the first question, uh, maybe a softball. Uh, so um, I, I, I know the answer in a way, but I'd like to hear you kind of talk about it. Why did you write this? Like ah. what? I mean, because you've worked on this for a while. 
Um, so what motivated it and what do you hope people really take away from it? Sure, that is a softball. So maybe a few months before the election, my daughter Laura, who was 30 at the time, interviewed me for StoryCorps. StoryCorps does oral histories. And the first question she asked me was, what would you tell a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question. And I had a lot to say, as it turned out, to a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett. And then after the election, um, which I found soul-crushing, as I mentioned in the book, the presidential election in 2016, I started to think, well, I've had the most perfect job in the world. What do I want to do next? And having had the privilege of working on every single issue that uh, went before President Obama for eight years, from January 20th to January 20th, I actually left the White House after he and the First Lady left, waving goodbye to them. So I really clung on till the last possible moment, knowing, knowing that it was as good as my professional life would ever be. Well, what to do now? And so I started focusing on the issues that I care most about, which are gender equity, civic engagement, uh, getting people to vote, criminal justice reform, uh, and ending gun violence. And then I was, and I can talk to you later about like going off about the business of working on each of those issues. But then this issue of what I would have said to a younger Valerie kept coming up in my mind. And my daughter said, "Well, why don't you just write a book and don't limit it to a 30-year-old Valerie Jarrett? Just say what you describe your life and the rather circuitous path it's taken." And the decisions, the key decisions that I made along the way, or that my parents made for me along the way, that influenced my trajectory in the hopes that it would help other people. And I would say to you right from the offset, I used to be painfully shy. I mean, I couldn't have spoken to an audience with five people, let alone all of you, uh, when I was younger, including through young adulthood. And uh, now I can't stop talking, as you can see from me answering the first question. And so how did that happen? How did I overcome some of this shyness that I had as a young person? And how did I find my voice, trust it, the most important one of all, which is the one inside of each of us? And then what did I do with it to be a force for good and help empower other people to find theirs? And I thought by sharing my story, both my professional journey as well as my personal journey, pretty candidly, that it might help people who are in search of their own voices. So that was the upshot of what motivated me to do it. All right. So Turned the, out to be harder than I thought, actually. <laughs> to those of you who haven't written books, boy, selling it is much more fun. <laughs> Writing it was painful. So why, why painful? What, what? Well, because you've got to look back at your entire life, and I will tell you, I've spent my entire life looking forward I've never looked back. You know, there are people who right. wax eloquently about college, and I loved my four years of college. The first reunion I went to was last year, and it was my 40th reunion. So I just have always had a forward approach. And so to look back over the arc of what is now turning out to be over six decades and try to distill it in a way that is readable. And my, I had a great editor who's like, you are not writing a tome. And I said, but I have a lot to say. And she's like, nobody's going to read that. Make it, <laughs> make it succinct and pick like the, what were the real milestones yeah. of your life. And that was hard. That was really hard. And you have to look within yourself in a way that I probably hadn't done as fully as I did there. So it was quite cathartic, too, yeah. in a way. So maybe um, for those who have not had a chance to read it yet, maybe you could say a little bit, too, about um, how you got to know the Obamas. And Surely. So 1991, after having practiced law for 10 years, six at a big law firm, which I did not enjoy, and I begin my book with 
the misery of the corporate practice of law for me. Not, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm offending any lawyers in the room, but it was not for me. But I stuck with it far longer than I probably should have. And I finally swerved out of that, uh, and it was one of the most important decisions I've made in my life. And I felt a calling to public service. And Mayor Harold Washington, uh, as Peter mentioned, had been the mayor of Chicago when I joined city government. He'd just been reelected to his second term. And unfortunately, he died soon after I got there. But I stuck it through, uh, and a couple years into Mayor Daley's term, he made me deputy chief of staff. So I moved away from the law. And as I was trying to staff up my office, um, a good friend who'd been the corporation counsel sent me a resume, and across the top it said, brilliant young lawyer, has no interest in being in a big law firm, might want to explore public service. And I thought, well, my kind of person, right? And that person's name was Michelle Robinson, soon to be Michelle Obama. And so in walks uh, Michelle to my office, and she's, as you know, tall and elegant, but very simply dressed, hair pulled back, all dressed in black, barely any makeup. And she shakes my hand, and she looks me right in the face. And she's 27 at the time, and I was used to people being a little intimidated by the mayor's office. There was none of that with her. And she saw her resume sitting on my desk. Never mentioned one word. I think she presumed I could read. And so instead of going, you know, Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law, she told me her story, which everybody now knows is, in a sense, the quintessential American story of growing up on the south side of Chicago, working class family, parents who had not gone to college, but who instilled in she and her brother Craig this appreciation for education and excellence and service. And I was blown away. I gave her a job offer on the spot. I had no authority to give her a job offer, I might add, but I just thought, who would, who would say no to her? And wisely, she demurred and said, well, let me think about it. So I was chatting with her a few days later, and I said, well, what about that job offer, having gotten the okay to actually make it? And she said, well, my fiancé doesn't think it's such a great idea. And I said, well, who's your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? <laughs> and so she said, well, his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago, and he has some real concerns about me going right from a corporate practice of law into a political office. And he, she said, he said, well, you had four years in the law department, which was kind of a buffer and an easing your way in from the frying pan into the fire as opposed to jumping right into the political office. And he wasn't, at that point, the biggest fan of Mayor Daley. And so he said, I want to kind of know the person who's going to be looking out for you. Now, wisely, I said, yes, I will get together with you guys if you want. And she's like, we're going to have dinner. And I think uh, a lot of people have said to me, well, isn't that peculiar that this really successful young woman would need her fiancé at the table? And my response is, it's really more a people into their marriage because having been there, there wasn't a single decision that he made about his political career without her at the table. And they began it long before they got married. And so the three of us had dinner, and the rest is history. Yeah, yeah. Um... She did come and work with me, by the way, for those of you who have <laughs> So I want to, you know, I'm going to open it up to questions, but, not, but uh, before I do, I have some questions myself about contemporary politics, but I wanted to also get you to maybe just reflect a little bit on the, the Obama years um, itself. I mean, uh, one of the things that comes across very clearly is just how much pride you take in... Um, the Affordable Care Act, and uh, and rightly so, it's a terrific um, 
incredible achievement uh, under really difficult odds, I think. Um, I'm wondering when you look back, are there, are there opportunities, like missed opportunities, things during the Obama years that you wish, oh, geez, I wish we had that to do again? You know. A do-over? Yeah. Well, look, we made a lot of mistakes, I'm sure, along the way. We were extremely self-critical every single day. I mean, one of, I think, President Obama's strengths is that he's very, he has the strength to say, okay, well, we probably blew that, or we should have said this, or we should have done that. Mm-hmm. But I will say, uh, I'll say this. There wasn't a single day where we lost sight of what we were trying to do, and that was service. And I think... I learned early working for local government in Chicago and a a big proponent of the experience of local government. And the reason why is that your constituents are proximate. They are right there with you when you go to the grocery store and when you take your child to the park. And I used to have people who tried to lobby my daughter beginning at about age six, which I thought was a little over the pale. But but you learn that public service is 24-7 and that's as it should be. And I think that, le- that learning experience really helped me when I went to Washington, because one of the challenges in Washington is that everything, you're so distant and aloof from the people that you're serving, unless you bring them in. And one of my responsi- well, my m- responsibilities, each one of them, was to bring people in, the, the elected officials who were not in Congress, or the mayors and the governors and the county representatives, state legislators, uh, and then the Office of Public Engagement was just everybody. It was the entire country, every possible constituency, because we wanted to make informed decisions. And I think one of the do-overs, if you will, that um, we talked about a lot is that we spent the first couple of years trying to get the policy right. Mm -hmm. And if you would remember, at that time, the United States was in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Our banks were on the verge of collapse. Our automobile industry was in bankruptcy, literally two of the three automobile companies. Uh, We were in two wars. We had uh, a health care crisis, a confidence crisis in terms of how the United States was perceived around the world. We had a lot going on. And so we were so worried about the economy because it would have had a global impact. If, if our banks had collapsed, the ripple effect would have been tremendous around the world. And we worked really hard at it. And then we were trying to get the Affordable Care Act done, and we were working really hard at making sure that the policy was just right, and it's a complicated piece of business. What we didn't do enough of in that first couple of years was to tell the story. Huh. We lost the narrative. And an example would be, you know, we tried to pass the Affordable Care Act and the Republicans had town hall meetings and they started scaring people to death talking about death panels and that that's what was in the Affordable Care Act. Well, nobody actually knew what a death panel was, but who would want a death panel, right? And so they were very good at getting those phrases that scared people and turning what was intended to provide every American the right of having affordable health care into a mandate that was being imposed upon people. And so I think one of the challenges um, when you are uh, the president of the United States, particularly if you think about it, social media really exploded during our eight years. I didn't even know what Twitter was when we started, and now you begin a meeting, and the first thing is, of course, your hashtag, and I'm at Valerie Jarrett, so you can tweet me too, or Valerie B. Jarrett on Instagram, which is a much friendlier place. Um, I have discovered the hard way. Uh, but 
We were also very mindful of having President Obama look presidential. The Republicans tried to describe him on the campaign trail as a rock star. So they took the strength that he was able to get you know, hundreds of thousands of people to show up, and they tried to make it a weakness. And I think we fell for that a little bit. And so we would you know, do speeches in the Rose Garden. And it was very cool to do a speech in the Rose Garden. But people aren't necessarily tuning in in that way. And it took us a while to appreciate you have to meet people where they are. And you have to use tools that are available. And as important as the briefing room is, and I do believe the White House briefing room uh, is an important place where the press secretary should actually show up every day. Um, <laughs> it's my opinion, opinion of one. Uh, but because it is the conduit through which we get out a lot of information, but it's not the only conduit. And I think it, we were a little slow on figuring out how to meet people where they are. And the person who was better at it than those of us in the West Wing was Michelle Obama. Yeah. And she had the freedom to just go and have fun and get people excited about healthy eating and to go to you know, YouTube and all of these new forms of media that seemed a little bit unpresidential to us. Um, I have regrets in terms of what I wish we'd gotten done. I wish we'd gotten done immigration reform. Mm -hmm. I look at the horrendous policy of separating these families at the border right now, and perhaps if we had gotten permanent legislation, we wouldn't be in that situation. Maybe we were. And, and, the, and the dreamers, those young people who are in our country, who in my opinion are citizens but for a piece of paper, through no fault of their own, uh, we tried desperately to get legislation to protect them, and now they sit in limbo as well. Um, I wish we'd gotten um, legislation to keep guns out of the hands of people who are a threat to themselves and to others. We lose in the United States over 30,000 people a year to gun violence, two-thirds who commit suicide. And uh, we thought after the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School where 20 first graders and six adults were murdered, then maybe, maybe then Congress would act. And I think I underestimated the stranglehold that special interests like the NRA had over members of Congress and that they would choose you know, financial support from them over their own constituents. So that was a disappointment. So yes, you, look, but, but you have eight years, and I think the goal is to run as fast as you can. All eight years, when we came up during the um, second election cycle, or during the 2016 election cycle, President Obama made it very clear, look, if you want to go work on a campaign, or a, the only campaign, go do that. But if you want to work here, work here. And so I say all this to say, yes, there are lots of things we might have done differently with hindsight, but we never lost sight of why we were there. Yeah, no. And I mean, Obamacare was huge. I think Joe Biden said it's a, a really big, deal. big deal. A big deal. <laughs> <laughs> to with paraphrase. Another word in between, yes, perhaps. Another word in yes. between. It so, was a big yeah. deal, and 20 million people yeah. have health care today, many who never had it before as a result of it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so the subtitle is The Path Forward. So I want to ask you about The Path Forward, that uh. is politics today. So your take on not you-know-who, but uh, although we can talk about you-know-who. Um, we've got 20, I think it's 23 Democrats running. Oh, it's 24. 24. At least. Somebody jumped in? At least, anyway, yes. Every know. day somebody else. But I think it, it, last I counted, it was 24. So what do you think? What do you think of the field? What do you think about the Democrats' chances? Uh, yes. Well, oh. You know, because one of the raps, 
One of the raps on Obama was that he was not tending to the next generation, but there's a lot of young people that are running right now. Well, I actually think that's uh, an inaccurate rap. I think we spent a lot of time with the next generation, which is why we have such a strong bench. I think we have an embarrassment of riches in the Democratic field right now. I know several of the candidates, frankly, most of the candidates well, some of them very well. And um, I think it's great. I think that they are... Um, putting their name in the, in the arena and they're out there on the campaign trail trying to earn the trust of the American people. I look forward to the debates that are coming up uh, this week and I think you know, eventually some of them will drop out but I have encouraged the ones to whom I've spoken to stay in there and fight and it's really retail politics where every single vote matters. And so I feel good about the field. I feel optimistic about the chances of a Democrat winning. And my view is anyone in the field now who emerges as a nominee, I will get behind and support. And I've encouraged the candidates to not spend a lot of time beating up on each other for two reasons. Number one, I can figure out what I think about the other guy or gal. I want to know why I should believe in you. What's your vision for America? Why should I have the confidence that you can pull our country together at a time that we were, where we are so polarized and that there's so much toxicity in the air? How can you unite us in a way that needs to happen? And why should I believe that you can execute that vision? Mm -hmm. So that's the question I, I encourage them to answer and to be authentic and honest with the American people. Um, and then let's see what happens. And then I think if people show up and vote, then we win. And frankly, I remind people that Hillary Clinton did get the majority of the votes in the last election. Uh, she only lost in three states by fewer than 100,000 votes. But, and this is what really, when I, when I went through the stages of grief after the election, trying to figure out what in the world happened to a country that elected Barack Obama twice, how did this happen? And where I zeroed in on is the one area where I thought, hopefully, with some effort, we could change. Uh, and that is 43% of eligible voters in the United States did not vote in the 2016 election for a whole variety of reasons. And that is all unacceptable. And so Mrs. Obama and I last summer launched a new organization called When We All Vote. I chair the board of it. And our goal, it's nonpartisan, which surprised a lot of people. But our view is, is that we have to change the culture in the United States about voting. I actually think it should be mandatory. But in, in lieu of me being unable to get Congress to do that, uh, I will be satisfied to try to increase the number of people who actually register and show up at the polls. I think states should do a better job of making it easier. I think we should have every state should have early vote. Too many people can't take off of work on a certain day, particularly because it's a weekday, Tuesday in the middle of the week. Uh, we should make it, technology should be available, we should, people should be able to vote online, expats should be able to vote a lot easier than they are able to now, but we shouldn't disenfranchise ourselves. And so, so a long way of saying I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic if the level of activism and engagement that we saw beginning the day after the inauguration with the Women's March in Washington that has continued with the Parkland kids, those amazing young people who galvanized um, the country for March for Our Lives and, and spent last summer registering to people to vote in blue and red states alike. Uh, the midterm elections were an indication of hope, although we went from 20% of young people voting in the midterm elections to traditionally to 30% in that midterm. So a big jump up, but 70% still didn't vote. So lots of room for improvement. But I think that 
And we'll see. I think that this was an aberration for our country. I don't think it actually reflects where our country is if everybody actually participates. I hope I'm right. I think probably a lot of people hope you're right. So um, one more question before I open up. We had Nancy Pelosi here back in April. Yes. And um, impeachment. So she's taken a pretty clear line on it, which, in, in, um, you know, that she doesn't want to go down that path. Um, she thinks it's bad for the country and it's bad for the Democratic Party. Uh, it will actually harm the Democrats' chances to get the vote out and so forth and to focus on the issues that matter. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I mean, are you kind of on the same page with her or? Well, one of the lessons, one of the many lessons I learned in eight years is to trust Speaker Pelosi. She has a very good feel for the country and a, and a superb mastery of her caucus. She knows exactly what their temperature is. Uh, my guess is that there has been a lot of polling done on this issue. And, um, and so if she says, let's not do this, then I'm with her on that. And, and so I spend my effort on what I can control, which is trying to help the Democratic Party. I just did a fundraiser with Tom Perez out in San Francisco. And I will tell you, the level of enthusiasm and engagement is quite palatable. And what he's done to improve the party's um, access to technology and using it to be able to figure out where we really need to spend our effort and our energy is tremendous. I think he's been a great leader for the party. Um, but. The direction of the country, as I mentioned in my book, it depends on all of those in America who can vote. And if they want to go in a different direction, they can turn that ship around with one, you know, take an hour out of your life. Let's say it takes you five hours because there's a long line. It's worth it. I'm going to open it up here. Um, just I would ask you to um, just briefly introduce yourself and make the question kind of crisp. We'll start right here. Madrid, American Kenyan. If you wait for the mic, I'm sorry, I should have. Uh, so it's an honor to, to be here. Thank my, you. My question has to do with um, since the election of President Trump, uh, one of the greatest casualties has been uh, truth and fact. Um, what, has, what do you think has been the impact on the fabric of American democracy, this post truth and fact uh, uh, atmosphere? Well, uh, it's an erosion of the fabric of our democracy. Uh, and, I mean, we have laws, and they're there to protect our democracy. And thank goodness for the judiciary, because it's a co-equal branch of government, and a lot of the uh, efforts to thwart progress have been checked by the judiciary, and that's important. But there's also this buffer of social norms. I mean, and, and I think the President of the United States, uh, leaders of all across the world, should be held to an even higher standard because they're role models and we're telling our children, look up to this person and follow their lead. And so to have a chronic uh, evidence-based uh, fabrication on a daily basis coming out of the leader of the free world and the President of the United States is deeply and profoundly troubling to me. And, uh, and it doesn't seem to matter whether there's a tape or a recording that contradicts it. Um, his willingness to just say whatever he wants to say erodes at those social norms. And they're there for a reason. It's part of the fabric of our democracy. It relies on those social norms being observed. And what it lets you know is just how fragile they are. 
and how leadership makes a difference and it has an impact and that other people then feel free to follow that lead. And so then where do you end up when you, when you can't rely on facts? And I, I will say this invites um, a topic which I'm going to take the liberty of going into, which is, I think, directly related, and that is the impact that social media is having on our lives. And when I grew up, in the United States, uh, whatever Walter Cronkite said on the evening news, we knew to be true. He said it once a day, he had all day to get it right, and he did not blur the lines between news and editorial and entertainment. News was also a loss leader. Nobody was making any money on the news. They were making money on Bonanza or Art Linkletter show or something, I don't know. But, but when news became a profit center, and now when you layer on top of that social media and the blurring of the lines and when entertainment draw, drives ratings and so you have one person over here yelling at another person over there and that that's sport, but maybe one person is completely wrong based on facts and the other person is completely right. And I think the news gets in the situation of making them moral equivalents when in fact they're not. And then there's social media where you, the consumer, determines the source and the veracity of the information you receive, and you're actually not in a good position to make that determination. And it allows people, and I say this particularly to the young people, because hopefully us who are older are a little set in our ways, uh, it does not allow you to exercise that important muscle of being uncomfortable of hearing things that go contrary to what you think, that push you to think maybe in a way you hadn't before, and maybe even change your mind. How about that for something novel? Which is part of why we really rely on institutions such as this to challenge us and keep that muscle going. But I'm afraid that um, young people are not appreciating that there is no substitute for actually being in person and looking into the eyes of the person with whom you're having a conversation and learning to pick up social cues. And the anonymity of social media allows for, and I kind of joked about it earlier, but the toxicity of what we see on social media is easier when you don't have to look into the eyes of the person to whom you are insulting. And I worry about how that is eroding, eroding the fabric of society, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. And, but we have a choice. We don't have to do that. We can put the phone down and we can pick up the phone and for one, call your mom or dad. They'd love to hear from you. And they don't want to text. They want to hear your voice. And I don't know about you guys, but my mom, and now I can do it with my daughter, within like five words, I know if she's okay. And my mom used to be able to do that with me too. That's important. That's, all of that is important. And so I think it contributes to this erosion that we're having. And we're in the middle of a technological revolution. What an exciting time to be alive, right? But we don't actually know how to manage it. And we're seeing right now in the United States, according to Bob Mueller, clear evidence of Russians attempting to influence the outcome of our election. That's just not something we worried about 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And so we have a vulnerability with these platforms. And the question is, what are we to do about that? And some of it as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we should be policing ourselves. But I think we do need regulations, and I think that those platforms should be a part of determining how to do that in a way that respects privacy. But we need to be able to protect ourselves from them being used as a force of evil as opposed to a force for good, which they were originally contemplated to be. That was a long answer. I'll be quicker so we can get to uh, more questions. I've got to stand up myself. Uh, 
woman right back there. Yeah. And if you could stand up so we can see you. Thank sure. you. Hi. Thank you so much. My name is Laura Mosdale, and I'm a dual U.S.-U.K. citizen, so I've got two governments to be stressed out about right now. I'm so sorry. You did pick two particularly challenging ones yes, right now. Yes, so I've been living here for about 20 years, and I uh, manage a list of um, volunteers who do nonpartisan voter registration drives all Wonderful. around the U.K. You could so teach I'm, me a lesson or two, I bet. Well, I'm really glad that you're, you're talking so much about voting rights. And you mentioned... Um, that we shouldn't disenfranchise our ch- ourselves, but uh, you didn't talk so much about how people are being disenfranchised yes. with the gutting of the Voting Rights Act and um, supreme partisan, uh, you know, very extreme partisan gerrymandering. Uh, there was an excellent documentary that uh, was just screened in London called Capturing the Flag about what happened in North Carolina and why a state that went for Barack Obama in 2008 went for Donald Trump in 2016. And a lot of it had to do with voting purges and redistricting and all that. So I guess my question to you is, what are... what is the organization you mentioned earlier doing in terms of a state-by-state strategy where, these, um, where there's such rampant voter suppression to address that? And uh, would you care to say something about the importance of the overseas vote for anybody in this room who might be a U.S. citizen? Every vote counts. Doesn't matter whether you live in the country or outside of the country. If you're an American citizen, That's right. you Request should vote. Your ballot. You should definitely vote. So... Um, when we all vote is not dealing with voter suppression. It's focusing on the um, trying to get people to turn out to vote. But Eric Holder, who was President Obama's Attorney General, is heading up an organization that is both looking at redistricting state by state by state, and he is also legally challenging states that have discriminatory practices. I am very close to Stacey Abrams, who was in London not long ago, and should be the governor of Georgia today. And there was clear evidence by her opponent, who was the sitting Secretary of State, who passed two laws that were deemed um, a violation of the law because of suppressing the vote and thrown out. But then there were all these mischievous tactics that were used to suppress the vote, purging the list, um, turning people away from the polls over minor technicalities as opposed to allowing them to do provisional voting. And we see, and it's, and it's kind of a pathetic strategy, but an effective strategy to make it harder for people to vote. Why can't you have confidence that if you're competing on an even playing field that you could win? When did that become a quaint um, saying? You speak about North Carolina. North Carolina also used to have um, a wonderful provision that allowed 17-year-olds to pre-register to vote because evidence shows that if you vote in your first election, there is a greater likelihood you will become a lifetime voter. Well, when that evidence surfaced, North Carolina repealed the ability of 17-year-olds to pre-register to vote. And then you have states like Texas, where if you were a student in Texas, your, your student ID isn't sufficient proof of residency. Ah, but your registration to carry a firearm, that is. And so there are all of these strategies at play. And so Eric Holder's organization is in going into court. They won in Wisconsin. They are being very aggressive, as well as looking at the redistricting, because there are organizations that 25 years ago started very systematically winning over state legislatures. And I think because the state race doesn't seem very sexy, that people weren't paying a lot of attention. And the gerrymandering is appalling. And so his organization is really the one that's going to bat for that. But if you have ideas on how we can do the nonpartisan voter registration, I'm open to those suggestions. Other questions? Let me just... How about the woman right there? 
Hi, my name is Christina. I'm originally from Syracuse, New York. And um, one of the issues that really concerns young women of my generation is the idea of equal pay for equal work. Um, I one day hope to go to medical school, and it's just it's very concerning to know that one day, after going to school for eight years, I might not get paid the same amount as my male colleagues. So I guess my question is, what are some piece of, pieces of advice or things that I could do in my own community to help combat this issue? Well, it's a huge challenge in the United States. Women in the United States still only earn about 80 cents on the dollar. African-American women, it's about 62 cents. Latina women, it's about 56 cents on the dollar. So we are way behind men uh, and across the board. So one of my responsibilities, Peter mentioned in the White House, was chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls. And pay equity was a big piece of our initiative. In fact, the first bill President Obama signed was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act that was designed to, to combat what happens all the time, which is that people are not paid equally, but they don't know it. And Lily didn't discover until decades later, because a colleague, a male colleague, tipped her off that she wasn't being paid equally. And by the time she brought her case, the statute of limitations had run out. And so it was thrown out. It went all the way to the Supreme Court and was thrown out. And so we were able to get a bill passed through Congress that basically tolls the statute of limitations uh, and has it start over again with each act of discrimination. But that's not the whole way there. We also supported a bill called Paycheck Fairness that would prohibit employers from penalizing their workers who share pay. Because again, how do you know you're not getting equal pay if you don't know what your uh, male counterparts are making. And then we also, when we were unable to get Congress to pass that bill, we started working with states to get them, states and cities, to get them to pass laws at the local level to close this pay, this pay gap. And then the final thing we did was to ask employers to voluntarily look at the data and see whether or not there was a pay discrepancy. And if there was, close it, and look at the underlying systemic or structural challenges within that workforce that created the gap in the first place. Since leaving the White House, uh, we gave the new administration, I thought, a, a period of time to continue the White House Council on Women and Girls. They chose not to do so, and so I started an organization called the United State of Women, and it was named after a summit we had at the White House in the summer of 2016, where we brought stakeholders together from all across the country. In fact, some people came from outside of the United States, and we showcased the progress that we'd made for women and girls, and the White House Council that President Obama created was the first time any president had a council that was representative of everyone, every agency in government. And he wanted to take a whole of government approach to gender equity. And so at that summit, we showcased what works in the hopes of helping people take it to scale in their own communities. And we brought, brought in people from all over who were in the work of gender equity. So we had another summit in 2017, 17, 18, 18, we're 19 now, 18. Uh, in Los Angeles, and more people showed up, over 6,000 people showed up, more than showed up at the one that we had while we were actually in the White House, which is another indicator of the progress and energy and enthusiasm that's out there. And we're going to do another one next summer uh, as well. And in between these summits, what we do is um, hold what we call galvanizing sessions around the country to find who is doing really incredible work in this. But to the person who asked the question about what you could do, you have to ask the question going in. Be like Michelle Obama, who asked me a whole bunch of tough questions when she interviewed me for the job when I thought I was interviewing her. <laughs> 
and say, what is your policy on equal pay? I mean, the advantage of having a, being a physician after all that training is that you will have a lot of opportunities available to you. And don't just ask, well, I get equal pay. Ask what's the trajectory as you go further up in the organization. Uh, if you're joining faculty of a university, you should be asking, well, not do I get equal pay when I start out, but what happens if I'm you know, a few years out from tenure or after I make tenure? What is my um, pay compared to my counterparts? And then we have to also look at all of the basket of issues that keep women, or and I should just say working families, from thriving in the workplace. It's equal pay. It's paid leave. The United States is the only developed country that doesn't have a national paid leave policy. It's sick days. We have 43 million Americans who don't have a single paid sick day. It's flexibility. When I was a young working mom, which I talk about at length in my book, I mean, some of the things I did were self-inflicted, like thinking I was superhuman. I don't know what made me think that. I thought I could work all day, come home, put my daughter to bed, work for another four hours, and then in the wee hours of the morning, I found myself making baby food from scratch. Well, you know what? She would have been fine with food from a jar. Um, <laughs> so some of it was self-inflicted, but some of it, as I discovered in the law firm, even with four months paid leave, was structural. And so I tried to take the experience I had as a working mom holding on by my fingertips when I had means and I had health insurance and I had predictable daycare and I had parents who lived in my neighborhood, I had everything going for me and I was still holding on. And so I used to think about what about those working families who have none of that, who are you know, working two shifts at a factory without health insurance and without a safety net and one paycheck away from um, bankruptcy if somebody were to get sick in the family, which is part of what drove us to get the affordable Care Act done. So I say be your own voice and be an advocate for yourself. And if you find gaps, impress upon your employer that it's in their best interest to close the gap because it will actually enable them to both not just attract but retain the best talent. Mm -hmm. And in a marketplace where women are half of the population and half of the uh, graduating from college at higher levels than men right now, why would you leave talent on the sidelines? Great advice. Um, this guy right here, Tom. I'm going to be faster, I promise. Not because your questions are not great, but because I want to get through as many as we can. Hi there. Uh, yes. My name is Alex Bristow. I'm going to be joining the LSE this September to study global politics. Um, and my question to you is um, the current president likes to take a lot of credit for the economy and the way that the economy is roaring at the moment. And one of the things that you suggested, as you spoke earlier, was, of course, the Obama administration was central to making a lot of corrective action to solve some of the economic issues that you inherited, some of the huge problems. Why do you think the Obama administration doesn't get the credit it deserves at the moment, given the current political climate? And also, what should the economic message be for the Democrat Party in 2020? Well, I think it does get the credit among the people who are working today who didn't have a job when President Obama took office. We cut the unemployment rate in half. And so as I travel around the country, I meet a lot of people who are out of work who are working today, and they got their jobs under his watch. So they do give him credit for it. I think it's a political decision to say, I want all the credit in the world. I'm glad the economy is still doing well. That's terrific. But a lot of the decisions that we made back in 2008 not only kept us from going into a Great Depression, but they gave us the momentum we needed to cut that unemployment rate in half. And we put rules of the road in place under Dodd-Frank which would prevent the big banks from taking excessive risk with taxpayer money. So rules of the road so that we never ended up in this situation again, where while people are losing their homes and jobs, banks are taking all this risk and need to be bailed out. Uh, so look, 
it, I'm not at all surprised. That's probably the least of the things I would criticize him for doing. Uh, I think anytime the economy is doing well, the person who's in power takes credit for it. Uh, let's go to the back. Let's see. How about the gentleman over there? Uh, hi, my name is Elisa. I'm a former LSE student and now a trainee lawyer. So my question is about Obama's legacy in the context of Trump now being the elected president. Um, Obama came in sort of on this wave of um, optimism, hope and change, thinking he could have this bipartisan sort of interaction with the Republicans. I don't know if you've read Tanahasi Coates, We Were Eight Years in Power, where it compares the Obama administration as sort of a brief interregnum of akin to reconstruction after slavery in the Civil War before you then get to, obviously, Jim Crow and Ku Klux Klan and more extreme kind of racism. And in a similar way, you can compare the Obama administration as a cyclical sort of interregnum, thinking that he could have this sort of, um, this naive sort of kumbaya with the Republicans and Trump now being elected in the sense that he's ripping up all of Obama's major accomplishments, whether it's the Iran deal, TPP, Paris Climate Accord, etc. We could go on. Doesn't that show on Obama's part a certain level of um, naivete during his presidency and the fact that he didn't confront sort of his opponents in a more aggressive, direct style and confront sort of some of the more racist elements of the right wing and thinking he could cooperate. And I think Joe Biden recently was just talking about, oh, when he gets into power, he's going to sort of do deals at Lindsey Graham and the other Republicans because they're his friends and, his, and he knows them. <laughs> but, but is that really realistic? And don't Democrats have to sort of create a new sort of approach? Well, so first of all, I don't think that President Obama was naive at all. I think what he appreciated was that in a country as richly as diverse as the United States, that it was important to try to do the people's work in a bipartisan way, and that he had to get caught trying. There were people who said to us, well, when you had control of the House and the Senate, why didn't you just jam the Affordable Care Act down the Republicans' throats. And the reason why he didn't want to do that is that his view is when you do big, bold things with the country, that it's important to try to make it bipartisan. The people who are elected to office in the Republican Party represented our constituents, too, because they were the American people. And the way our Constitution works is you work through the duly elected representatives, and that's the Republicans. And uh, it wasn't naive to try to do that. It's what he thought was right. Now, you could say, people have said, well, why didn't he schmooze them more and take them out and play golf and have dinner with them and wrap his arm around them? We tried all of that. <laughs> they just didn't tell you because they didn't want anybody to know that they were doing that with us. And Mitch McConnell himself said it probably best. His number one objective... Yeah not more important than saving the economy, not more important than bringing home 150,000 troops or finding Osama bin Laden or creating affordable health care or, or ensuring love meant love or any of the other accomplishments of the Obama administration. His objective was a political one, and that was to ensure President Obama did not get elected to a second term. And we thought after he was elected, perhaps that fever would break and that they would be willing to come and work with us. And on every single effort that we made, they just said no. And there were many egregious ones, but I suppose the one that's relevant now, because Mitch McConnell was just quoted on this subject, but when uh, Justice Scalia died and President Obama nominated the most qualified person, Merrick Garland, Chief Justice of the D.C. Circuit, the second highest court in the land, to be the uh, successor, 
within his last year in office, and he was told by Mitch McConnell, oh, the people of America should get to vote first before we confirm a Supreme Court justice. And we said, well, wait a minute, according to the Constitution, the president gets to nominate. It's one of the most important responsibilities he has. Give him a hearing. If you want to vote against him, that's your privilege. It requires advice and consent of the Senate, but at least give him a hearing. And he said no. And now he's saying, well, if something were to happen to someone on the Supreme Court today, of course they would confirm them, which is the best admissions possible of just how rawly political he was. Ta-Nehisi Coates is a very dear friend of mine, and we disagree completely on his vision of America. And I think his book might have come out differently had Hillary Clinton won. Uh, and we spent a lot of time talking to him. He did an incredibly interesting piece about President Obama. And President Obama spent, I think, six different sessions with him talking about how they view America. And my optimism, and the reason why I think this is an aberration as opposed to President Obama's presidency being an aberration, is that I spent a lot of time traveling around the country in red and blue states alike. And I see more people who think we have more in common with one another. And unfortunately, in this in this um, media environment that we're in, what rises to the top are the people who spew horrid, racist, white supremacist uh, rhetoric, or people who feel as though this is an aberration, and that let's go back to when America was great. Now, I don't know about you, but America under President Obama was far better for me as an African-American than any other time in our nation's history, so I'm not sure what greatness we're going back to. Uh, I think that the arc of the moral universe is long, and it does move towards justice. And, and I, I will use an example not in the racial context, but let's talk about uh, life for the LGBTQ community in America. When President Obama was elected, same-sex marriage was legal in two states. In 2008, two states. Just prior to the Supreme Court ruling in favor of it, it was 37 states and the District of Columbia. So in the span of six years, we'd made what you would say is a lot of progress, and he would say it felt like a thunderbolt. But then that ignores the decades of hard work that went into getting us to that moment. But one year, President Obama gave me for my birthday um, a copy of the Petition for Universal Suffrage, signed in 1866, uh, framed alongside of the resolution um, by Congress that gave women the right to vote, 53 years in between. And so I think in terms of his leg legacy, we won't know for 5, 10, 15, maybe 50 years what his legacy as a president would be. It is far too soon to tell. Yes, a lot of what we did by executive action has been rolled back, but you know what? We repealed a lot of what President Bush had done. The only difference is the Democrats were all for that, but you can be sure a lot of Republicans were annoyed by it. And that's why elections have such consequences. But if we win in this next election, I think we still have an enormous opportunity to build on the momentum that was put in place by President Obama. The only reason why the Affordable Care Act has not been repealed is because the American people rose up and said, don't do that. It's politically toxic. It helped us win the midterm elections, saying that the Republicans wanted to take away this important benefit. So don't give up on our country just yet, but recognize the power that Americans have to change that trajectory and to seize the country. And if everybody votes, I actually think we win. We have time for one or two more questions. I'll take this woman right over here. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Helga. I'm a student at LSE on environmental economics. 
Um, my question is more of a personal one. You said before that um, public service is like a 24-7 um, calling, and I've worked in public service, so I, I know where you're coming from. Um, but my question is um, how, how to keep, like as a woman and your mother, how, how do you think you can ba balance that? Um, because I've worked in, in public service, but I don't have a family yet, and I wish to. Um, and, and I wish to continue working in public service. That's um, my passion. But I wonder many times of how, how to manage that, of, of having such a demanding job and then um, balancing that with your personal or family life. Yes. The word balance, I think we should remove from the nomenclature because there's actually no such thing as balance. <laughs> it's never. I mean, those of you in relationship, is it really balanced? No. At different parts in time, it's up and it's down. And there are trade-offs that you make from all of your decisions. And so one of the reasons I left the law firm is that I didn't think I had the flexibility to be a single mom at that law firm. I didn't think I'd get the support I needed in order to thrive. And some of it I did to myself because I felt like I had to do everything the guys were doing plus more being a mom. And I never talked about it. I never explained to them how challenging it was for me to have to do all that. I just sucked it up and tried to compete, knowing it's like Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. I'm dancing with high heels backwards while the guys are just going along their merry way. Um, when I joined city government, I worked really hard, but I felt that my client, who was my mentor, who I discussed at great length in the book, gave me the flexibility to go home and put my daughter to bed. And then she'd come by my home and we'd work from my home. And then I, I was able to see Laura during an important part of the day. And so you make these decisions and they have trade-offs. And, and I say, put yourself in a work environment where you're gonna be able to thrive and it's not gonna be so debilitating. But the other thing I say to you is, look, and those of you who have children will know this, it is hard. Under the best of circumstances, it's just hard. But you know what, then they grow up And then they become adults and they make you proud and you forget how hard it was when you were changing 100 diapers a day. And then, like my daughter, she's pregnant. I'm like, you're going to see, baby, just how hard it is. <laughs> uh, and so I think the question is, how can you speak up and say what you need in order to thrive? And sometimes we don't have the ability to do that and then we need other people to do it for us, which is one of the reasons why gender equity is a big part of my platform. I'm using my voice to make this argument that we have to make it easier for people to thrive in the workplace. And flexibility is key. I'm sure that you could work a large number of hours with children if you could have the flexibility to be a part of their lives when they're awake at key moments. And in order to do that, you've got to find the environment. You've got to ask those questions at the front end. And I say that not just about um, gender equity, but whatever it is in your life. Let's say you're gay. Don't go work at a place where you're going to be discriminated against if you come out. If you're Muslim, don't go work at a place where you're going to get discriminated if you're honest about your religion, which means that if you're in a position, and those of, most of you in this room are in a position, to ask those tough questions at the front end, do so. Do so. Say, look, I, and don't be ashamed of it. I used to sneak away to go take my daughter to the pediatrician. Whereas when the guys would go to soccer games, people would go, oh, what a wonderful dad. Indeed. Right? <laughs> no, no, nonsense. Now, the good news, I would say, is for your generation of men, and this is an issue too, guys, you got to step up. You've got to step up your game because it's going to be a lot easier on you if you have a child, if your partner is co-equal. And I was just at Spotify a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's a Swedish company, but they have big 
operations in the United States. And they adopted a, a one-year maternity and paternity leave policy, equal, which is something I support completely, because why would we start out with an unequal leave if we expect for men to participate more wholly? And you can take it any time over two years. And they said that they did that policy in the United States, even though it is way beyond what most companies do, because they're competing for talent globally. And so I think we have to push employers to recognize their role in ensuring that they can have a talented person such as you stay there. And that applies to government as well. In the White House, we had three months paid leave for men and women. If you can do that in the White House, you can do it anywhere. And I'm not saying three months is enough, because I actually believe it should be longer, but it's a good start. One more? Uh, one quick one. Okay. I'll be quick. You don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, my name is Roger Hector. I work for LSE in the United States. Uh, I have three three governments to worry about, actually, because I'm originally from Northern Ireland, then the UK, and now I'm a very proud US citizen. And one of the proudest documents that I have on my wall in my home is a document I was given on the day I became a US citizen. So thank you. I also got married to an African-American man uh, two years ago, and I believe that all of the things that you talked about made that possible for me. So thank you, and to President Obama, too, for helping make that so. My question's quick, and it's unrelated. What do you think of the Electoral College? Yeah, yeah, I'm not much on the Electoral College, to tell you the truth. Um, I understand why it was there initially, but I kind of believe the majority should rule. And um, it's funny, uh, President Obama, we would do fundraisers in New York, and he's very popular in New York City. And people would say, what can we do? What can we do? And he would say, move to Utah. (laughs) 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 Right? (laughs) Valerie, uh, we've, we've run out of time. She needs to catch a a flight, but she's going to stay long enough to sign some books. Um, it's been terrific having you. Thank here. This you. is her first time to the LSE, and yes. we would love to have you back. I would love future. to come back. Thank you all.